Has someone ever used their influence to help you in your life? Yeah, probably so. And influence is, you know, it's kind of a, a funny thing. And the thing about influence is, is that every single person has influence whether they realize it or not. Did you know that? Every person has influence and that influence can either be used for good or that influence can be good be used for, for bad. It can be used for good or it can be used for, for, for evil. And every single person has this. Probably most people in our lives, if you've lived any time at all, you have had someone use their influence to put in a good word, to uh, make a call, to send a text or an email or something, speak to someone on your behalf that has brought benefit to you, right? Yeah, probably all of us have. And there are still others, though, who have had someone use their influence to, to keep them from something. Have you ever experienced that? Where maybe you were up for a, a promotion and there was someone who had greater influence and maybe they made a power play that both blocked the promotion and maybe even secured that position for themselves. Okay, And, and if you've been on the receiving end of bad influence, on the receiving end of a, of a negative power play, Man, that's not a fun place to be in, is it not? I have had lots of people go to bat for me in my lifetime. I've had lots of people go to bat for me in my career that has helped me tremendously. And I would not be where I am today without those people speaking on my behalf, without those people writing letters of advancement for me, without people making calls and giving recommendations and all of those type of things. I wouldn't be where I am, and I don't think I'd be the person I am without positive influence in my life. Right? That's the same for you? Now then, on the other hand, I've also been, I've also been on the receiving end of, of negative influence. Several years ago, several years ago, I was marginalized in my ministry because um, some very, very affluent people uh, decided that they didn't like some of the, the element that my ministry was attracting. And so after several closed-door meetings, it was revealed to me that I would be moving into a sort of an out-of-the-way role within the church that wasn't likely to, uh, to ruffle any feathers. Okay? And you may have experienced something like that too, where someone used their influence to cause something negative to happen to you or to block you from something or to keep something from happening to us. We all have influence. And our actions, think about this, our actions determine what type of influence we have. Does that make sense? Our actions determine the type of influence we will have in the lives of others. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this really crazy chapter as we've moved through the book of Acts in this chapter 16. This is where Paul has received a Macedonian call. It's to go into this new area, go into Europe, and begin planting churches. 
And we looked at this crazy story that happens right in the middle of the chapter last week as we talked about what it means to, to be a hero. And that's where Paul and Silas went into the Agora, the marketplace, and they were preaching Jesus. And there was this little girl that was following behind saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming to you the, the way of, of salvation. And Paul got sick of it, remember? And he turned around and he exercised the demon from that little girl. But she was a slave, and her slave owner, her slave masters were not happy about this because all of a sudden, their way of life, their income was gone. And so they stir up the crowd, and they bring Paul and Silas before these magistrates, and they are arrested, they are beaten, they are jailed. And we looked at that very graphic story last Sunday of what Paul and Silas endured to make sure that the spreading of the gospel would continue, to make sure that it would go into Europe and then across the oceans, eventually even, even making its way here. Today we want to unpack this story a little bit more. and We want to kind of build around it and look at the, the surrounding stories that give what we talked about last week even more meaning and even more life. So Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they've now come to, to Greece. They've come to Macedonia. They've received this call. And verse 13 says this, that on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women gathered there. Now what we've seen so far is that Paul and Silas and their company, what their habit is when they go to a place is to find a synagogue like a like a Jewish gathering of people and go and worship with them and Paul would stand up as a rabbi and he would preach and he would tell them about Jesus and all of that and it's caused him trouble but when they get to to to, uh, to Philippi there is no synagogue so Paul I can imagine goes into the agora and he begins asking questions and in time he learns that there is a group of women who are called God-fearers. Now then, that are, that's not Christians. That's not really even Jews. It is non-Jewish people who are practicing Jewish habits. Okay, For whatever reason, they're not pleased or haven't found anything worthwhile in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods, but they've heard about the one God of the Hebrews, and that's intrigued them. And so they've started worshiping and putting these, these Hebrew practices into place. Those people would, call, would be called God-fearers. So they learn about the God-fearers that are meeting down at the river. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke make their way to the Sabbath, or to the river on the Sabbath, where they meet with these God-fearing women. And along the way, Paul must make known that he is a rabbi. And it says that while they were there, they met a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Now, Lydia is an extremely important character, not only in this story, but in the book of Philippians, in the book of Philippians as well. Lydia was from Thyatira. Thyatira is one of the seven churches that Jesus addressed in the book of Revelation. Okay? Thyatira was known 
for this purple dye. Purple dye was very expensive. Only the very wealthy or the very imperial people could afford this purple dye. And Lydia is a dealer in this purple cloth, which means she is incredibly wealthy. Okay, And she is in this group of women, this group of God-fearers who have, who have gathered at this river. And she is there, and she's listening to what Paul has to say. And then verse 15 says, After this, she and her household were baptized. She urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. That probably wasn't too hard of a sell because they are likely camping out somewhere outside the city. And then all of a sudden, here is this wealthy woman named Lydia that says, hey, come and stay at my house. And we think, okay, that's great. And that is great, but there is so much more to this. Okay, there are a couple of things here that kind of just jump off the page. One, Lydia, she's the head of this household. Okay, she owns this house. Okay, now whether she's divorced or whether she's a widow, we don't know. But we know that she is a very wealthy woman who owns her own house. She is the head of that household. She's very, very wealthy. And she's just convinced Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to come and stay at her house. Now then, why this is so important is because probably this is where the church at Philippi met. Because before, they're just gathering down by the river. Now they're meeting at the house. And so it's there at her house where this church is gathering, where the church the, 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 who would become the Philippians gather together to worship and pray and to read Scripture. It's there that they learn of Paul's sufferings later on in his life. It's there where they make the decision to dispatch a kid from their congregation named Epaphroditus who travels all the way to Rome to bring Paul money and supplies to pay for his imprisonment and his ongoing court costs. And it's there where Epaphroditus returns back to, calls the church together, and then reads the letter of Philippians to the church from Paul, which is addressing some of the issues that they were dealing with. Okay, so this is a very, very important meeting. Very important that Lydia opens her house and invites them in. Okay, and it's at Lydia's house where Paul is going to set up his base of, of operations. And so we can imagine what Paul does is he continues going to the Agora. He continues asking questions. He continues to engage people, continuing to talk about Jesus. And it's somewhere along the way that this little spirit-filled, and when I mean spirit, I mean evil spirit-filled girl, slave girl, notices Paul and Silas. And that's when she gets in behind them and starts saying, these people are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, although it's not the salvation that Paul and Silas are speaking of. Finally, Paul's annoyed. He turns around. He casts the demon out of her, and then that's where all the trouble, that's where all the trouble begins. Because all of a sudden, this girl has not just been freed, there's now a new problem that's developed, and that's her owners are extremely Mad. So they grab them and they bring them before the magistrates. And it says, these men are seriously disturbing our cities. They are Jews. And they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans 
to adopt or practice. And so what happens, the, the, the sequence of events is, is kind of bewildering. What began as a, a spiritual problem, you know, this girl with this, this evil demon inside that's allowing her to, to, to see the future and allowing her slave owners to make money off her back, a, a, a spiritual problem becomes an economic problem because they realize they've lost their source of income. They've lost their way of life. And so they grab Paul and Silas, bring them before the magistrates, stir up the crowd, and so then the economic problem shifts to an ethnic problem. They say that these guys, Paul and Silas, they are what? They are Jews. Okay, so it's gone from a spiritual problem to an economic problem to an ethnic problem, but we're still not done yet because they say these Jews are promoting customs that are illegal for us as Romans to practice. It's now become a political problem. Do you see that? The problem is that last charge isn't true. Because there were no Roman laws that prohibited any Roman citizen from practicing or adopting Jewish laws. But that just sort of gets swept by the way. And so the magistrates say, okay, we'll deal with this. We'll show them what Roman life in Philippi should look like. It says, so the crowds joined in the attack against them. The chief magistrates stripped off their clothes, ordered them beaten with rods. After they were severely flogged, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. Now last week, I, I mentioned a guy by the name of Tim Woodruff who has written a, uh, a narrative commentary on the book of Philippians, which everything that happens here in this story happens in Philippi. The book of Philippians is connected to all of this. And it's in this commentary where he lays out this scene and he kind of fills in maybe some of the details. And he's adding some names and he's taking some license, but it helps us to understand maybe a little bit more of what the scene, what this scene would have been like. And so he names one of the magistrates, Tertullus. Now if you want to just close your eyes and listen for a minute, you can, and it might help us gather this, the idea of what this is like a little bit more. This is Tertullus speaking. Shall we expel them from our great city? Tertullus tapped his finger against his lips, seeming to give this action due consideration. The vocal reaction of the crowd told him that expulsion was good, but not good enough. He and his fellow magistrate conferred momentarily. It is our judgment that these two miscreants should be shown that Philippians do not tolerate un-Roman ideas and activities. Let other outsiders take warning. The crowd shouted its agreement, working itself into a frenzy of anticipation. Turning to the lictors, Tertullus ordered loudly enough for the crowd to overhear, beat them, throw them into prison for the night, and then evict them from the city on the morrow. The mob did not disappoint him. It howled and clapped and stomped its approval at the wise decision. 
Tertullus smiled and waved, drinking in their applause, already calculating how to capitalize on this latest rise in his popularity. He and his companion turned, walked back into their offices, leaving the sentence to be carried out by their assistance. And so there it is. That's where the beating takes place. That horrific beating with rods that we talked about in, in great and, and really horrific detail last Sunday. That Paul and Silas endured for the, the sake of the gospel. But the story does not end there. Because it says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and, and singing hymns. And then an earthquake all of a sudden rolls through the land. And their chains and their stocks fall off and the jail flies open. And the jailer is suddenly awakened. He's, he's, he's panicked. He's out of his mind with fear because he thinks the prisoners have escaped. And what he faces is death. So he is just about to fall on his own sword when Paul and Silas call out and say, Hey, don't harm yourself. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Every one of us. We're all here. We're present and accounted for. Then the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then verse 30 says that he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Now, we think, you know, this, this is an incredible, Incredible statement, but we have to understand that this is not, this is not a, a Christian that he's dealing with. Okay? He is dealing with a Roman citizen, so his understanding of salvation is going to be vastly different than what our understanding of, of salvation is. Okay? And looking at this, it seems that salvation in the mind of this jailer seems to be operating on one level. But there's a couple of deeper levels that are with us too. The first is the immediate level. You see, the Roman understanding of, of salvation would include healing. But also, Rome offered salvation to its subjects, and what that means is, is rescue from war, from, from social upheaval, and from destitution. Okay? This guy's understanding is how do I get out of this mess? Okay? When he says what do I need to be do to be saved, he's not saying tell me how to become a Christian. He's saying in his understanding of salvation, what do I do to get out of this situation that I'm in? What do I do? How do I get out of this? Because his only concern is that he's going to be put to death. Because he's let the prisoners go. His one job given to him by the magistrates in front of the whole mob is don't let these guys escape. Right? Epic fail in his mind. But Paul and Silas are there. The prisoners are there. He says, don't harm yourself. And he's amazed by this. He says, hey, okay. I'm glad you're here. What do I got to do? How do I fix this? Okay, that's the immediate level. But Paul takes it to a deeper level. 
He says, you want to talk about salvation? This is salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So he takes it to another level. He takes it to this, this deeper level. You see, because believing in Jesus, coming to faith in Jesus, then opens the door to Jesus' victory over sin and death. It opens its way into acceptance into the family of God, of being baptized into salvation. And then there's the third level, the ultimate level. And this is salvation, that knowing that, that God one day will rescue the whole creation from its slavery to decay, bringing all of Jesus' people into the new creation. And so while this guy just is really concerned about saving his own neck, when he says, how do I get out of this? What do I have to do to be saved? In other words, what he's saying, what do I got to do to save my life? Paul is saying, well, yeah, okay. Let me tell you about another way to save your life. Believe in Jesus. Give your life, give your life to him. Verse 32 says, and, he spoke, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. And we think, man, that is awesome, is it not? That is powerful. What a great ending. But guess what? The story's not over. Okay? There's more. There's more stuff coming. Verse 35 says, When daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, Release those men. We've done our job. We have executed Roman justice. We have upheld Rome and its laws. We have defended what we believe in. We've beaten those men. They've learned their lesson. So has everybody else. Go ahead and cut those guys loose. And you can imagine the jailers like, oh, great. You guys are getting out of here. I have found salvation in the Lord, and I have found salvation for my own life. Paul, isn't this great news? All you guys got to do is go. All you got to do is get out of here. And if that was any one of us, would we not be getting out of town as fast as we could? Yes, would we not? But this is Paul. Paul doesn't do anything the easy way. He never does anything the easy way. And we think, why, Paul? Why? There must be, there must be a reason for why Paul does the things that he does. The jailer says the magistrates have sent word. So now come out and go in peace. And Paul says, wait a minute, not so fast. That's good. But they beat us in public without a trial, though we are, oh, Roman citizens. 
then they threw us in jail. And now they're going to just send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And we think, Paul, just go. Just shh. Just, just go. You're clear. You're free. Don't make this situation worse. Why would you say this? He has a reason. You see, that, that Roman citizen thing, that's, that's a big, big, big deal. Okay, that is a big deal, and that is a serious oversight. You see, a, a non-Roman could be beaten, could be flogged, could be jailed, could be arrested without a trial, and it was absolutely fine to do that, okay? If you are a non-Roman, they could do all those things, okay? without any consequences, but if you were a Roman citizen, they absolutely could not arrest you, could not beat you, could not put you in jail without a trial. It's absolutely against the law to do this to a Roman citizen because in the eyes of Rome, their citizens are better than anybody. And if you mess up on that one, you're not only going to lose your job, you're likely going to lose your head. And the magistrates have just learned that these guys are Roman citizens. Listen again to Tim Woodruff. Tertullus walked rapidly in the direction of the Philippian jail. His lips were pursed in anger, but behind his eyes floated a cloud of fear. What do you mean they're Roman citizens? He hissed at the lictor. Why didn't they say so yesterday afternoon? We could have avoided all this unpleasantness. Whether Tertullus meant the unpleasantness of their beating or his own humility and humiliating journey to the jail, the lictor could not tell. They did claim citizen, citizenship, magistrate, but their claim went unheeded in the noise of the disturbance. The jailer was waiting for them on the steps of the prison. Your Excellency, he saluted. We've been expecting your arrival. This way, please. Tertullus passed through the gate, hissing at his lector. And his lector, how many people know about this? Too many leaks, too many wagging tongues and eager ears. They were led into the prison courtyard where Paul and Silas sat stiffly on a bench, unfettered, and Tertullus was glad to see, not in immediate danger of expiring. Let me just get them out of town alive, the magistrate thought to himself. Then they can die. Indeed, I hope they do. And slowly. He was a sour man. Gentlemen! Up came the smile, outstretched the arms, on with a look of concern, and yes, shock at the miscarriage of justice. I understand that a grave mistake has been made. Is it true that you're Roman citizens? Paul could hardly bear to look at the toady. But there were other purposes to serve this morning, more important matters to address. So he fixed Tertullus with a level gaze and he spoke quietly. I was born a Roman citizen in the province of Cilicia, in the city of Tarsus. Shall I fetch the official papers? They're in my pack where I'm staying. 
Tertullus died a little inside. No, no, of course that won't be necessary. Paul continued, You have us arrested without charges. You have us beaten publicly without the benefit of a proper trial. And you have thrown us into prison. We are citizens of Rome and you have treated us like common criminals or barbarians. You have disdained our rights and held Roman justice up to ridicule. You have pandered to a mob when you are charged to enforce the law. Paul's voice rose with each sentence. He knew how to speak the language of power when it was necessary. Paul, may I call you Paul? This is a most unfortunate situation. I'm simply devastated by the suffering you have wrongly endured. Now now surely there must be some accommodation that we can make to secure an outcome that is in... There is, Paul interrupted. He could stand the man no longer and simply wanted out of his presence and out of this prison. I want two things. First, a private word with you, Tertullus. Second, an immediate release. Silas and I will leave the city before sundown, but we have business to attend before going. Agreed? Tertullus could not believe his good fortune. This man could be bought after all. All that remained was to haggle over the price. Certainly, Paul. Those are very, accept, uh, very acceptable and, and generous terms. Jailer, he summoned to the keeper of the prison. Clear this courtyard. When they were alone, Tertullus cocked a worldly eye at Paul. Well, how much? Paul kept his face passive and tried to swallow his distaste for the man. You can keep your money. What I want won't cost you a denarius. Give me what I want and your conduct yesterday will stay our secret. Do you understand? Tertullus nodded. Are you interested? Tertullus nodded again more vigorously. Then listen carefully. There may be times during your tenure as magistrate when charges will be brought against people who are called Christians. A mob may bring these people to you as they did me or they may come to you through regular channels. Here's what I want from you. If, after hearing the evidence, it is clear that they are guilty of some crime, stealing, say, or some assault, pronounce them guilty and punish them. But if the charges are brought primarily because they are Christians, because someone doesn't like Christians, because Christians make people nervous, you will recognize that, and you will do everything, and I do mean everything in your power, Tertullus, to protect them and see that their rights are honored. Do you understand? Tertullus nodded quickly, trying to memorize the terms of the deal. If they're guilty, condemn them. If they're innocent, protect them. That sounds easy enough. Not for you, Tertullus. Paul's voice grew hard, and he stepped closer to the magistrate. Let me make this simple for you. Think about what happened yesterday. Do you remember that, Tertullus? The Roman nodded glumly. Paul continued, I am a Christian. Those people drummed up charges against me because I make them nervous, and you did nothing to protect me. His voice was like granite now. The next time that happens, think about what you would ordinarily do, and then do the opposite. Paul turned to leave, but paused momentarily. With his back to the Roman, he said, I'll be watching the situation here in Philippi very closely, Tertullus. 
If I hear that any of my fellow believers have suffered unjustly under your watch, I will return and bring charges against you and break you like a twig. Do you believe me, magistrate? Tertullus felt his bowels turn to water. Oh yes, he believed him. Well then, have a pleasant day. And I hope we will not be seeing each other again. Now, whether it actually happened that way or not, I don't know. Like I said, this is a narrative commentary that Tim Woodruff is trying to provide some of the backstory for. But the whole reason that Paul did not go quietly, we have to believe, served a greater purpose. Because if this happened to him, why would it not happen to others? Okay? If this new and fledgling church, which he is now going to leave earlier than likely he intended to, if that new church did not believe they would have any kind of protection, they might be scared to death to even gather, to even, to even meet. And so I think Paul's purpose in this right here, other than showing that there has been a, a horrible miscarriage of justice, I think he did it for the sake of his church at Philippi, of protecting their lives. And so Paul agrees. And so he gathers the church at Philippi one final time after being escorted out by the magistrates. It says, after leaving the jail, verse 40, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters, and then they departed. That's a crazy chapter, is it not? That's an action-packed chapter, is it not? That's why we spent three weeks talking about it and unpacking it because there's so much good stuff in it. And we could mine this thing even further. But there's points to be made. There's a community connection that we need to acknowledge. Whether that, what I just read to you, happened or not, there's still a very valuable lesson to learn. And it's what we started out discussing, is that each person has influence whether they think they do or not. Okay? If you are a person, raise your hand. Guess what? You have influence, right? You have influence that can be used for good or for evil. The way that you gain influence is to extend Love, mercy, compassion, and service to those who need it most. Think about the people who have influenced your life. Were those things not present? Love, mercy, compassion. Doing things for you when you couldn't do them. That's the way to gain influence. Influence used for evil oppresses. It steps on or over others. It is jealous. It is vain. It is self-seeking. And it is self 
promoting. So here's our community connection. As we think about what it means to be a follower of Christ in Thomasville, Georgia in 2018, it is this, leverage your influence for the good of others. Does that make sense? Every single one of you has influence. You have the ability to influence other people's lives. You must decide, am I going to use my influence for good or am I going to use my influence for evil? We must decide, if we are followers of Christ, to leverage our influence, not for our own gain, but for the gain, for the benefit, for the well-being, for the good of other people. Otherwise, what's the point of having influence? You see, and when you leverage your influence for the good of others, you know what you're ultimately doing? You're leveraging your influence for the kingdom of God. Here's some ways you can leverage your influence. I've only got three, and there's so many more. Number one, speak up when others cannot. There are others whose voices are being drowned out, that are being oppressed, that are being stamped out, and you, if you have a voice, and if you have the ability to speak up, speak up! Say something. Speak positively on someone's behalf. Some group's behalf. Point out the good and God-given qualities and characteristics of a person's life. The second thing, act on behalf of others. Act on behalf of, uh, of others. If there are things that you can do to help someone out, help them. Act on their behalf. And then finally, look for opportunities to build up and encourage others. Now then, these three things, there's only three, there's so many more, but I think these are kind of the general ones, and these will manifest themselves in many different ways and in many different situations. What your job is, and what my job is, is to take these three things of influence and say, okay, how do these manifest themselves in my life, in the people that I interact with? If we're going to be followers of Christ, we must leverage our influence for the good of us. This is what we see Paul doing over and over and over and over again for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.